You are cordially invited to a long-expected party. Join us, my brother, my captain, my podcast, in our Twitter space on Saturday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Greenwich Median Time or 4 p.m. Eastern Time as we reflect back on the magic that is the Fellowship of the Ring in the best way we know how, by watching it. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually we work through the films, one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. The red sun rises. Blood has been spilled this night. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is And My Bow, an analysis and discussion of Legolas, son of Thandriel and Alf of Mirkwood. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We assume you know them well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Lembeth. Elvish Waybread. One small bite is enough to fill the stomach of a grown man. You cannot take J.R.R. Tolkien's works as politically neutral or a political fantasy. It simply cannot be done. I would argue that you cannot take any art as politically neutral, and that it's actually a really bad habit to be in, to assume that there's some type of art or entertainment that is inherently distinct from morals and politics, but this is especially true with Tolkien. If you take everything that Tolkien writes and says at face value, with no critical evaluation of what he's saying and what you're reading, you're going to be signing yourself up for some heinously evil shit. It's just how this stuff works. I say this now at the very top of our episode about Legolas, because a lot of the history that I'm about to run through with you guys is going to be history that looks and is not great. It's quite grim writing. And it's really, really important for us to all remember as we go into this that J.R.R. Tolkien was fundamentally a British imperialist. And I don't just say that as in he was an imperialist who was British. He was capital B, capital I, British imperialist. We'll get into what that means more throughout the next however many episodes of this podcast, but it's important to note that British imperialism is something that's especially distinct from other types of imperialism, and that it is really, 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 really clearly on show with how J.R.R. Tolkien handles the elves. So, without further ado, time for a history lesson. Take a look at this! Jesus Christ, Charlie. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail with you all day, okay? To quote noted scholar Hilary Duff, let's go back, back to the beginning. 
And the beginning for us is the creation and awakening of the elves. The elves were essentially created from the same material as the earth by Eru Iluvatar or God. For many, many years, also known as the years of the trees, the elves were left lying in sleep in Middle-earth. Eventually, Eru decided that the moment was right for the elves to be awoken and essentially to become a living, breathing part of Middle-earth. At the time, there were eight elves lying in slumber at the Bay of Quivinian, which is in the far east of Middle-earth in the area that is in the Third Age known as Rune. I don't want to get into the slightly weird genealogical politics of these original eight elves, but suffice it to say that there's only really two generations uh, difference between the elves that first wake up at Quivanian and, for example, Indus, who is the second wife of uh, Finway, who is the father of Feanor. So we're not dealing with a huge amount of generational difference between these original guys and the guys who start making things really, really messy that we've already spoken about at length. At the very beginning, there were three, broadly, groups of elves that began to coalesce. There were first the Vanyar, who are notable because when they got the call from the Valar to go to the west, they went west and broadly stayed west. It should also be noted that Elenwe and Idril, who are two elf women, uh, did go east again with the Noldor, but of course they are women and therefore ultimately powerless and so don't really function as a part of these broad generalizations. Secondly, there were the Noldor, who we have talked about extensively, and they went west, and then they went east, and then they went west again, and then they got kicked out of trying to come back to the west, so they had to go east again, so on and so forth ad nauseum. Some of the examples of the Noldor that we've already spoken about include the High King Finway, Feanor, Maedhros, Fingolfin, Fingon, and then of course Arenian Gil-galad. The last, but certainly not least, of the kindreds of the elves are the Teleri, and only about half of them answered the Valar call to the west. Of the half who did not go west, they split into two distinct groups, the Sindar and the Nandor elves. The Nandor settled along Anduin, which is of course the main river that we deal with in The Lord of the Rings, and the Sindar went as far as Beleriand before they stopped. Pepe Sylvia, this name keeps coming up over and over again. Every day, Pepe's mail's getting sent back to me. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. I look at the mail, well, this whole box is Pepe Sylvia. So I say to myself, I gotta find this guy. I gotta go up to his office. I gotta put his mail in the guy's goddamn hands. Otherwise, he's never gonna get it. He's gonna keep coming back down here. So I go up to Pepe's office, and what do I find out, Mac? What do I find out? So, this call to the West that I keep referring to. In the Legendarium, it's treated as something of a moral issue, and it should be noted that J.R.R. Tolkien really did see West as best, and I don't want to under underestimate how strange of a political inclination that is, but at least within the in-universe moral framework, it, it was clear that the call to the West made by the Valar was an important moral call. The elves were being asked to join the Garden of Earthly Paradise, and spend the rest of their years until the end of days there, and the fact that some of them chose not to go is something of a moral weakness on their behalf, at least as far as J.R.R. Tolkien is concerned. For my part, I don't really see a problem with them choosing not to go west. I think 
Feanor's actions, particularly in <laughs> smiting the Valar, is a really good example of what happens when these, you know, perfect utopian but religious cults, essentially religious cults, don't flame me there on that one, have absolute control over what is right and wrong. And I think if all of the elves had gone west, there may have been some problems. But, and as I will continue to say throughout the course of this podcast, Tolkien and I have some slightly different morals and politics. So there's a reason for that variation there. <laughs> it's also really worth noting, um, as I think I'm going to have to keep doing throughout this brief uh, discussion of the history of the non-Noldorian elves, um, that a lot of the elves that didn't go west actually did significantly less fucked up shit than the elves who did go west. So, you know, questions have to be asked. We've already spoken extensively about the Noldor, and I, to be quite honest, I'm a little bit tired of talking about them, so we are instead going to focus on the Teleri, who are, in the Third Age, the Sindar and the Noldor, or the Nandor, rather. Fuck the Noldor. So, the Nandor colonized Mirkwood, which was then Greenwood the Great, and would later become Aaron Las Galen, Wood of the Greenleaves. I should mention that you will often hear me shorthand the Nandor as the Sylvan Elves, this is technically incorrect. The Sylvan Elves are only one clan of the Nandor Elves, but the other clan that comprised the Nandor, the Green Elves, are basically a non-entity by the Third Age, so they don't really matter. Anyways, all of this to say, our man Legolas, not a Nandor Elf. There is no Pepe Sylvia. The man does not exist, okay? So I decided, oh shit, buddy, I gotta dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Sylvia, you gotta be kidding me! I got boxes full of Pepe! Now we have to chat about the elephant in the room, Beleriand. Beleriand is the western part of the continent of Middle-earth. Initially, it was inhabited by the Sindar elves. This is after the Noldor went all the way to Valinor and Amon. Their kingdom in Beleriand was Doriath, ruled over by Eluthingal and his wife, the Maiar Melian. After the Oath of Feanor, when the Noldor began to flood back into Beleriand, things became, to put it nicely, problematic. Anyways, there was some stuff that went down with the Noldor and this guy named Morgoth, and eventually there was some fighting, and the fighting got so bad that Beleriand itself was sunk under the sea, but I'm kind of tired of talking about it, so go back a couple episodes if you want to hear more about that. Suffice it to say, there is a decent amount of animosity between the Noldor and the Sindar and the Nandor. So the Sindar and the Nandor tend to go together, and the Noldor tend to keep to themselves, the notable exception, of course, being Lothlorien. I just want to flag something here, which is that I read a really brilliant post on Tumblr arguing for a from-below reading of how exactly Orifer, a Sindar elf, came to be king of a predominantly Nandor region, that is Mirkwood, and I really like it, so I'm going to share the summary of it here. So, the Nandor really, really, really don't like the Noldor. The Noldor fucked up in both Valinor and in Beleriand, and they are really, really bad at ruling. They're bad news generally, and it looks like they're starting to come east in search of new land to fuck up. The Noldor don't have a huge amount of respect for the Nandor, but they do, rather begrudgingly, have some respect for the Sindar Elves. It's unlikely that the Noldor are going to take over a realm ruled by a Sindar Elf, the important exception to this is Caliborn and Galadriel and Lothlorien, who do take over from Amdir, but that's a much slower, far less violent process. So, if you're an Andor elf, and you don't want your way of life to be fucked up, and you don't want a Noldor ruler, what do you do? Well, you install a Sindar king. 
Enter Orifer, the accidental great unifier. All right, so I start marching my way down to Carol and HR, and I knock on her door and I say, Carol, Carol, I gotta talk to you about Pepe. And when I open the door, what do I find? There's not a single goddamn desk in that office. There is no Carol in HR. We're going to take a brief pit stop here to talk about someone who is actually a great unifier, but who is not Orifer. And he is, of course, Elrond. Elrond has potentially one of the most insane family trees in all of the Legendarium, and I'm going to try and condense it down to something that is vaguely reasonable here so you can see why he's such an important hinge point in the Third Age of Middle-Earth and why he might actually be the most important political player of Middle-Earth. And that includes Galadriel, who is, to my mind, not half as important as Elrond is. So... Elrond's great-great-grandparents were Baron and Luthien. Baron was a man, and Luthien was half Teleri and half Maiar. Luthien's father was Eluthingol of Doriath, and her mother was Melian the Maiar. But also, Eärendil, Elrond's father, was also half-elven, because he was the son of Tuor, one of the Edine, the early men, and Idril, that elf that I mentioned up top, who was, of course, granddaughter of Fingolfin, who was brother to Feanor. Eärendil also traced his heritage to all three major houses of the early men. But wait, there's more. Elrond and Elros were, as we have noted, abandoned by their parents during the sack of Syrian, and were fostered by Maglor, second son of Feanor. Elrond chose the path of immortality, while Elros chose the path of mortality, and he became the first king of Numenor. Elrond, therefore, and this is where things get a little crazy, brings together every single house of man, including the Numenorians, and also bringing together the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri. This is quite literally the most overpowered family tree in Middle-earth. Now, generally, I would say that family trees are just boring nonsense and fantasy, but they are something that Tolkien is incredibly concerned with, so I do want to point this out here, and to also point out the fact that um, Elrond is the figurehead of this, not, for example, uh, Thranduil, who is Orifer's son, who has brought together the Sindar and the Nandor elves in Mirkwood, because Elrond has this kind of overpowered family tree and, you know, Thranduil's coalition is slightly less impressive than literally every race of Middle-earth in one family tree. So there we go. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Matt, half the employees in this building have been made up. This office is a goddamn ghost town. Time for another family tree. This one's Orifer's family tree. So Orifer is not a Nandor. He's a Sindar. He started life in Doriath, and then after the destruction of Beleriand, chose to stay in Middle-earth instead of going west. He had a son named Thranduil, and then migrated to Greenwood the Great. He deeply, deeply, deeply resented both the dwarves of Khazad-dûm and the incursions of Celeborn and Galadriel in Lothlorien. It's safe and fair to say he had good reason to be intensely skeptical of his new Nodarim neighbors, especially, in the case of Gladriel, one so closely related to Feanor, the fuck-up par excellence, who ruined, quite literally, an entire continent. Orifer joined the War of the Last Alliance alongside Amdir, the Sindar elf of Lorien, and together they created the Host of the Sylvan Elves, which should be contrasted with Gil-galad's Host of the High Elves. 
Orifil was killed at the Moranin at the War of the Last Alliance, and two-thirds of his army was destroyed during the war, which ultimately accounted for like two-thirds of his overall population. So by the time we get to the Third Age, the elves of Markwood are really, really hurting. Thranduil, Orifil's son, took over as the king of the Greenwood. We don't really know a huge amount about what Thranduil got up to during the Third Age, except that he built his halls in Mirkwood underground, and there's substantial elven precedent for this. Both Menegroth and Doriath and Nargothrond, which was for Finrod's fortress city, were also built underground. Then there was like some shit about a battle of five armies. Apparently, Billy Connolly was there. I'm sure I've seen some movies about this, but for some reason, I just can't remember anything about them. I was actually going to ask, and I know we don't put a lot of stock in the Hobbit films, um, but, you know, I love Lee Pace. Is, like, Thandril's characterization, like, how close would you say that is to how Thandril is in your mind based on the Legendarium? Yeah, he's much meaner in the books than he is in uh, the the films. I think, like, the, the Thandril of the films, um, just because of, like, who Lee Pace is as an actor, comes off as, like having potentially having kind of like an inner softness uh whereas uh book thrandwheel is definitely a bit uh hoity-toitier i guess would be the right way of saying that like he's definitely far more distant far more closed off and um, certainly when we see him um, in the hobbit which is the only time we really see him uh he is uh not an especially well i mean he's a gracious host but he's not especially like gregarious host and um, so, you know, I, I think Lee Pace brings a lot of, like, um, amiability to Thranduil, not to the point of, like, being a totally different character. I just think he makes him someone who's, like, slightly less painful to watch on screen. Yeah, and that might just be who Lee Pace is, like you said. But, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's kind of the... He, when we meet him in The Desolation of Spock, he de- technically appears in uh, An Unexpected Journey. I can't believe I remember the Hobbit <laughs> films as well. But... uh he, when we first meet him in Mirkwood alongside Legolas for the most part, um, he's definitely kind of a dick. He's obviously not super welcoming to the dwarves or Bilbo um, into his woods, but it's kind of like one of those underneath a rough exterior and it's not super rough when it's Lee Pace, but there's kind of like a heart of gold that's kind of near the end of the Battle of the Five Armies where it's like, yeah, we're here to help and we're good and Legolas, go find this ranger dude in the north. Like He kind of has one of those. It's very tropey or very kind of a very standard character arc uh, in modern fiction. Um, but I was just wondering if that was at all accurate because I don't remember The Hobbit, the book at all. Yeah, um, no, it's because The Hobbit book is painful to get through. Um, I, I think one of the other things is like there's, um, in kind of softening up Thranduil a bit, I wish they'd done it more along the lines of like, they, they wouldn't have because I think these movies like tend to idolize Elrond, which is, I guess, fair enough. Um, but like Thranduil has a lot of reasons to be like quite politically skeptical of uh, like Elrond and anything Elrond puts his like stamp of approval on. And um, not just because um, Alrond has this sort of Feanorian connection, but, you know, even though like people who, you know, read the works that concern Alrond have a different sense of his character, like in a lot of ways, Alrond would appear to be someone who uh, collects uh, high powered politicians. So he goes from being um, well, so he goes from being the the, the son of um 
Eärendil and Elwing, who are both relatively important people in in their uh, own respects, to being well abandoned by them, picked up by Maglor and Maedhras, uh sons of Feanor, uh, to uh, later becoming the herald of uh, of Gilgalad, uh, who is one of the most important uh, kings in Middle Earth in in the history of Middle Earth, um, and Elrond mostly as as the kind of either unfortunate or fortunate trait of just being in the right place at the right time. Um, but there is definitely a sense that like, for example, Thranduil uh, has a bit of, uh, you know, looks at Elrond like he's a bit of a star fucker. Um, and so is, is a bit cynical about him, um, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do if you're not like dealing with uh, Elrond on like a, on a routine basis, like for example, uh, Aragorn or, or Gandalf are. Um, but I think they kind of chose to go with like the nicer uh, at the end. Uh, Thranduil is ultimately like, still just as charmed by the hobbits as anybody else and so really that means he's good which is like fair enough but like i think it, at least in the like text of it all um thranduil is a bit justified in being uh not so taken by the uh, the company okay no that makes sense um i do have some other thoughts but i'm gonna save them because it might be slim pickings when we get to the hobbit movie so <laughs> i want to save all the good medially paced stuff for that <laughs> so um before we go back to lee pace and i do hope we run back to that topic uh soon uh there is another uh himbo in charge that we need to talk about which is thranduil's son That's right. We are going to finally move on to the main event, as such as it is, that is Legolas, the Elf of Mirkwood. And I'll just start by going over some of the quote-unquote basic shit about his character. The name Legolas is Cinderin. It's actually spelled L-A-E-G-O-L-A-S in pure Cinderin, um, meaning Greenleaf. And Legolas is the Sylvan dialect. Um, I believe that's how I have it. And in Quenya, it is... <sighs> God damn it. <laughs> Lakwa just just say it for me, please. Lakwalasa. Okay, I was gonna say Lakwalassie. Um <laughs> so enough. that sounds a lot better. Uh so he's the son of Thandru Th- damn it. <laughs> he's the son of Thandruil. God Thandriel, as we've been talking about here. <laughs> Uh, who is the King of Elves in Mirkwood, as played by Lee Pace in The Hobbit, which we all just talked about. Uh, fun fact about their performances that in those Hobbit movies, which came out about 10 years ago, Pace is younger than Bloom is, despite playing his father. Haha, finally, someone getting the lady treatment there. Um, yeah, so it is significant that Legolas is the son of Thranduil and is, of course, referred to uh, repeatedly pretty much throughout the books and not at all in the films, I think, um, as the prince of the woodland realm. Um, there is kind of an assumption that Legolas is the crown prince, as in the heir to Thranduil's throne. And, and like, I think there is there's like a lot of merit to it, but I like pointing out these moments where like the text is really unclear and, and the text is really unclear on, on the issue of Legolas. There is really nothing to say that he's an only child. There's nothing to say that he's the eldest son. It just says that he is a prince. So there may be a, a Legolas brother somewhere uh, kicking about who's ready to take the throne. 
Or because the elves live so long, and particularly the Sindar and Nandor elves, who, despite being kind of pegged as less wise and more violent, um, tend to actually live longer uh, as rulers than the Noldor elves because they don't throw themselves at stupid fucking battles all the time. And there may not be a a sort of crown prince position because Thranduil uh, expects to quite literally live forever. Um, So, you know... This doesn't really necessarily add a huge amount to like how you look at the films, but it is one of these things, these base assumptions that people make about Legolas that I like pointing out isn't necessarily the full picture. Um, and one thing that I would also like to point out here, and this is also kind of especially pertinent for like the Auron chat, is that like um, royalty in uh, in elven uh, regimes, I guess, um, is sort of expected to work uh, in terms of like standard uh, men inherit the titles um, and and typically firstborn sons inherit the titles, but there's um, a lot of precedent for it not working the same way um, as we would expect. Like in the case, for example, of Gil-Galad, he gets to pick his own heir. He also doesn't have a son, um, but he gets to pick his own heir and there's not really any sort of like questioning of that. There's, there's definitely a sense that like the way that the uh, elves handle their monarchies is the ideal kind of royalist sense of monarchy. And there's that like ultimate kind of near divine respect for how the kings uh, choose their heirs and, and choose to kind of govern their their internal family houses, unless, of course, you were Feanor. Um, so, so I just want to kind of point that out um, as, a, as an important element of uh, the discussion of elven royalty, if that is uh, something anyone is interested in thinking about. I don't want to uh, go too far into this because we do have an after the war section, but um, you talk about, you know, whether Legolas is actually the crown prince or whether he has any siblings. We can at least functionally say that he doesn't actually ever take his father's seat, though, right? Because we know that he ends up sailing west eventually after his stuff with Gimli and Aragorn dying, or did he rule in any kind of meaningful sense? Uh, no, so he doesn't rule in any meaningful sense in Mirkwood at least. Uh, there's not really a huge amount of information about what happens to Thranduil after the start of the Fourth Age, um, but we know that Legolas uh, goes and takes a colony of uh, Sylvan Elves to uh, Athelion and uh, essentially rules there in in a capacity, presumably as m- more a lord than a prince or a king, um, especially because he is in a, a prince of Athelion, then it's it's a fire mage prince system there, um, but yeah, he he doesn't really take up as anything in uh, Markwood. Okay, great. Sorry for spoiling. You know, about twenty minutes from now when we get to that <laughs> bit, but just felt it was worth asking. Um, another thing, I'm going to kind of ask, but I already know the answer is we don't really know Legolas's date of birth or his mom. Is that a thing that happens? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So this is going to be like a common theme. Uh, Legolas is not really a very well fleshed out character, uh, which is why we don't really know anything about when he was born. Uh, the mother issue is a far more interesting issue um, because, like, yes, it can be kind of loosely attributed to uh, the fact that Legolas is like a not particularly uh, comprehensive character in terms of like facts and figures. Um, but it, it, I would say it is more uh, pertinent to this discussion of Tolkien's missing women um which is shorthand for the question of where are all the fucking women in these 
stories um and uh i i like i would just preface this by saying uh i tend to have this slightly controversial position of um i think it's probably for the best that we have as few women as we do because i i think that um tolkien writing women and writing as many good women as he did in 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 lord of the rings and in the silmarillion is probably an issue of luck rather than particular skill um and i think the more we increase the number of women that Tolkien has to write, I suspect the more likely we are to run into some deeply fucked up women characters. Um, if you look at, for example, like uh, Muriel Sarenda, who is uh, Feanor's mom, where she literally pulls a Padme and uh, dies of having uh, birthed too hard um, and then refuses the the right, the opportunity to be re-embodied, as is the right of all elves um, when they die. Uh, you know, you get into that kind of murky waters of like, what is the the you know these questions of catholic womanhood and and how do uh women really fit into the the catholic worldview um and Tolkien as a devout catholic uh has has his his limits uh, his limitations in terms of how he can truly understand women um so a lot of women are not present that really should be in the legendarium, which is, um, you know, some people would argue shame. Other people would, uh, myself included, would argue uh, fucking lucky because I don't want to read the badly written women. Um, but Legolas's mom is one of these kind of most obvious examples of a uh, big old question mark in, you know, neon and blinking lights around it, uh, which is why don't we have this information? And the reason, like, if, if we're real about this and if we're honest about this, the reason we don't have it is because uh, women are kind of treated as, uh, women as a concept are kind of treated as like a secondary uh, consideration in in vast swathes of uh, Tolkien's writing. Um, and unless they have a like incredibly specific narrative purpose to serve or, or ideological or religious purpose to serve, they're not really going to show up. Um, and, and, and that's this. So we have uh, incredibly long family trees detailing all of the men. Uh, you know, you can go back 26 generations for uh, the stewards of Gondor. You can go back like 40 generations for the lords at Vandania and Numenor and the kings of Numenor. And you can have every single son named and almost none of their daughters. Um, and that really, in a nutshell, is this question of Tolkien's missing women. Yeah, um, maybe putting on my like liberal representation hat here for a second. Um, I think the issue probably more is just that this person doesn't have a name, um, which tends to be yep. kind of a red flag. Not that like we don't have the ongoing adventures of Legolas's mom or <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah, um, it's just like usually you like to see these names, and we noted this in everything else I've covered, Metal Gear and Game of Thrones, like. If there's just a woman there that they just don't give a name but probably should have a name, um, those are just things to kind of point out. So yeah, yeah, and uh, with the like, especially with a lot of these kinds of elves who like Tolkien kind of sees as like morally inferior, you're going to find this a lot where there are like places women should very much be, and like places where the the absence of women is like incredibly obvious, and it comes down to like that this fact of like if the women cannot fit neatly or like the presence of women cannot fit neatly into this kind of like moral framework that Tolkien has or uh or as in the case of like Eowyn for example into this uh political and narrative argument he's wanting to make then uh, he doesn't even really expend the effort to, to add them in he's just like uh not not my problem which is you know not great right and then the last thing here on the character history is just basically what Legolas was up to right before we meet him at the Council of Elrond 
And I'm just going to use a space to mention that, and I think we talked about this when we talked about the Council of Alrond, is that Legolas was actually sent there to inform everyone else <laughs> there that Gollum had escaped the dungeons of Mirkwood. And I think we detailed what exactly happened back when we covered that episode. So I'm not going to relive it. Nothing to do with Legolas, but I actually just kind of personally like the film's take on Mordor setting Gollum loose um, as opposed to the whole 18 years of Gandalf chasing him and then <laughs> holding him at Merkwood. I, I, I just think it works a little neater, but it only does so because of how condensed the timeline is in the films. Legolas, as we've said, is not especially well thought out as a character. He obviously serves his purpose in the Fellowship and is, for many people, one of the most exciting and interesting parts of the Fellowship. But I think it's pretty clear from what we've got about Legolas that Tolkien wasn't especially interested in him. I do want to note a couple instances where uh, Legolas does show up in kind of the meta history of the creation of Lord of the Rings. Um, if you ever sit down to read uh, The Unfinished Tales um, and specifically The Fall of Gondolin, uh, you will notice that there is a character named Legolas Greenleaf who is helping to usher uh, various elves to safety during one of the worst moments in uh, elvish history. This is not the Legolas Greenleaf <laughs> that we see in Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, totally different. Uh, Legolas would not have been kicking around in Gondolin. Uh, so these are these are totally separate and distinct characters. Um, the Fall of Gondolin was some of the earliest bits of like coherent writing that Tolkien does for the Legendarium. He starts writing it in like 1916 on a leave of absence from the war, um, and I think goes back and edits it um, and uh, or edits it in in preparation for publication, even though it never does get published. Well, does get published, but not until much later, um, in 1920. Uh, so there is this kind of legolas figure, um, at least from the kind of very genesis of of uh, the Legendarium. But he doesn't really do very much with him until he needs a character to solve a specific problem for him. Um, and this is a problem that we have uh, talked about before, which is the problem of Glorfindel. Um, initially, um, and this is going to validate a lot of people who, who do ask this question, even though I find this question kind of grating, um, initially Tolkien was uh, planning on sending Glorfindel with the Fellowship. Um, but he very swiftly decided that uh, Glorfindel lacked the ability to shut the fuck up ever, um, and that is a, a less than ideal trait on a stealth mission, particularly when you already have a character, Boromir, uh, who, who fulfills that <laughs> incapable of shutting the fuck up role quite well um, and Tolkien went back and said you know we need an elf uh, we we really need someone to do this um, the Noldor culturally uh, are incapable of behaving themselves so we can't send Glorfindel uh, so he 
develops this character of Legolas uh, and sends Legolas off along with the Fellowship. Um, and so if you go through and read the books and, and pick up, as Manu did, that Legolas doesn't really say much about his people uh, and doesn't really do very much talking at all that isn't lovely poetic stuff and like nice poetic stuff. It's it's fun to read, but you know not really anything particularly in-depth. Uh, that is the reason why, is because he is basically Glorfindel's understudy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and trying to pull sound clips and quotes for this episode, man, it was... <laughs> Legolas just doesn't say anything of substance about either himself or his people or his history or anything like that. At least with Gimli, who's, you know, even more of like a comic relief vehicle. Um, at least he talks about being a dwarf and yeah. what dwarves are good at and what they're not good at. <laughs> so you can find good stuff. But with Legolas, it's like, it's just nothing. He either says these weird poetic things or he just like is saying... I'm sorry to Aragorn. That's literally like the two categories of dialogue he has, which makes it kind of funny because I've been probably for six or seven episodes now talking about how Legolas is easily my favorite <laughs> member of the fellowship. And he is e like, it's, I don't know if it's because there's no character there or just like I can be head empty about him and just like, yeah, he does cool action stuff. I mean, you can draw a straight line from my favorite movies being like The Rock and Golden Eye to Legolas being my favorite fellowship character. But um, I do, I do realize he's weak. I'm not, I'm not pretending there is like some deep characterization that isn't there. I just kind of find it funny that he's just kind of there to be hot and do fun stuff, like be hot, do crimes, yeah, you know that kind of that kind of character. And I'm all about that. It's so. an important role. I mean, he is like a fan favorite, so so it is like it is not for naught that he is a fan favorite. Like there, you know, maybe it is the kind of general lack of like a like an intensive character and um, behind him that that makes him kind of interesting to to play around for so many to play around with for so many fans, or it's the fact that. Like he really does just show up, uh, say cool things, uh, do cool things, and then kind of disappear with like no emotional baggage. Um, and and to be honest, like I'm not fully convinced that he isn't just like a collective hallucination, and like especially one engineered by Aragorn to like be his hype man. So you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and once we get to talk about the movie, they, they just find ways to use him to like forward <laughs> exposition or story when there's really no logical sense for it to work <laughs> that way. But um, we'll get there. Uh, but first, uh, we'll uh, just kind of wrap up what happens to Legolas after the war. Um, he was there for Aragon's coronation, uh, which we see depicted in some fashion in um, the films. I It's been a while since I read that chapter in Return of the King. I don't know if he does anything more substantial at his cor Aragorn's coronation. I don't know if you have anything to add there, Emily. Um, um, so he doesn't really do anything at the coronation, but he has this brilliant bit when he first gets into Minas Tirith, where uh, Minas Tirith is like, I think this is right in the middle of the siege of Minas Tirith. Uh, it is obviously not looking at its best because it is you know, facing down the full, like, strength of, of Mordor. And he's, like, commenting on the, like, flower arrangements. And he's, like, saying to one of my favorite characters, Emrahil, like, man, this place is a fucking dump. Like, you guys are going to really need to clean this up. Like, I'm really not keen on your, like, flower beds here. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that is, like, one of the last kind of intensive conversations that Legolas has in the books, which is, you know, good, good for him. Focus on the priorities in the middle of battle, Legolas. Good for you. Uh, I need a extended edition scene where Legolas walks into Minas Tirith and then they just uh, overdub him with Mark Hamill saying, what a piece of junk. <laughs> uh, before, uh, from uh, following all that, uh, 
basically Legolas and Gimli go on a little buddy road trip uh, through a couple locations that they visited during the War of the Ring, uh, specifically the Glittering Caves behind Helm's Deep, as well as Fangorn Forest. Um, they had kind of made a path that, you know, if they come out on the other end of the war, they would go visit these places together and actually enjoy them instead of worry about dying, which was pretty much the situation uh, during the war. Um, and there is something very heartwarming to me about saving the world. And after doing so, taking the time to actually go appreciate and enjoy that world mm -hmm. that you just saved. And perhaps more importantly, to do that with someone you love. So I find that all very sweet. Um, I wish we actually got to see some of that in the extended editions, to be honest. Yeah. I, I think there's also kind of this really interesting thing because like the the this concept of like stopping to savor uh, what's around you is something that is present all the way through, uh, well, through all of the quests, really. Like in, in Moria, I think this is one of the kind of more obvious moments. Um, in Moria, in both the books and in the films, Gandalf is like, stop look at what's around you stop hammer time uh, stop look at what's around you uh this is this is uh you know the kind of aftermath of a great civilization this is what happens when it falls you're in the 21st hall of uh of moria like look at what's look at this kind of monumental architecture around you appreciate what the what you're walking through and and then you know in lothlorien legolas does more or less the same thing aragorn kind of has a really like vivid reckoning with uh his like recent history at karen amroth uh at in the books when they enter or prepare to enter Meduseld and uh, Adaris, um, there is this moment of pausing to recognize the immense amount of history and kind of beauty and, and handiwork and, and craftsmanship that goes into creating something like Adaris and, and Meduseld. And um, all the way through, there's this kind of sense of like, we need to stop and appreciate it. But it's really bittersweet sense because all of these places that they're stopping to look at, they're, they're, they're you know, going through this kind of process of realizing that the time of all of these things is over. And so they are, you know, tourists in a sense, but it's like death tourists. They're not seeing something that's alive. They're not stopping to appreciate something that um, is, is is kind of vital and active. They're they're appreciating something that has come before and has been basically lost to the world. And the only thing that that remains of this this uh, you know these civilizations that came before um, is is the kind of footprint, the 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 relics, the ruins of it. And so later, when uh, when Gimli and Legolas go to the Glittering Caves and go to Fangorn together, um, it is this kind of, as you say, it's like going, <laughs> going and appreciating the world around you, but without that bittersweetness. It is like this kind of active sort of, you know, the world has been saved, and now we're going to identify what good is still there you know what what kind of good is like germinating in the world and we're going to appreciate that just as much as we appreciate all that has come before and i think that's like that really kind of nice like tethering of of past to the future yeah and uh speaking of the future uh legolas also uh repaired the woodlands in athelion which you kind of mentioned earlier but do you want to talk about this a little more yeah so this is um yeah this is interesting so i um I'm always quite enamored with like the future of Athelion, um, because obviously it's like it is like quite closely linked to to two of my favorite characters and the series. But it's also I think uh, Tolkien's kind of <laughs> like um, metaphorical kind of like proving ground for the future. Um, Athelion, as we see it in the books, is something that is beautiful, but is also dark and 
terrifying and overrun with things that are evil um, at the very end of, uh, or rather at the start of book six um, in Return of the King, which is second book of Return of the King, um, you know, Athelion is given to Faramir as his princedom to take as his princedom um, under the the kind of expectation that he, you know, uh, scours it, cleans it of all of the evil and that um, it becomes this place to, to kind of... Um, create the future of the reunited kingdoms which is the kingdoms of gondor and and arnor um and and a place to kind of be like the the, the greenhouse or like the 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 uh the grow lab <laughs> of gondor um and it, it becomes a place where like uh metaphorically and symbolically the the world becomes anew again um and uh absolutely integral to this this opportunity for athelian to to become the the kind of uh proving ground for for gondor uh made new um is the ability to get rid of all of the things that are bad and evil and dark about it um and uh that legolas uh brings a colony of mirkwood elves um to athelian and works to strip scour the uh, forest of athelion of the orcs and then to create not just kind of like passive dying forests but to create like actively vital forests is um like an important link to me to to one of tolkien's wider themes which is stewardship over the land but also like active service um and i i kind of got at this a bit but not not necessarily maybe as in-depth as i ought to have but like the sindar and the nandor elves and choosing to not go west to valinor and ultimately made their immediate um and slightly shallow desires um the 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 kind of ultimate uh motivating force in their lives and they saw beauty in middle earth um, and decided that that was the absolute beauty for them and they had no need for this divine beauty of valinor Um, and so uh most of them rejected uh the 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 call to go west because what they saw in front of them was uh good enough uh and and that like instant gratification was good enough for them um this kind of act of of like uh, salvaging and recreating and rebuilding the forest of Athelion is um, is essentially kind of a, a, a like a, a moral an act of like moral penance um, on behalf of these Nandor and, and Sindar elves at least in the the kind of Tolkien's moral framework here where where um, they are not just kind of stewarding the land because it's something that they will immediately benefit from they are you know that's the the cliche the fucking cliche you know they're they're planting a garden. Um, whose flowers they will never see. Um, and so in so doing and, and in kind of ensuring that there is this ongoing future for the lands of, of men um, after they depart to the West, um, they are doing their act of moral penance. They will not reap the benefits of this. They will not be the ones to, to really, truly enjoy and thrive in these woods, but they are doing it because it's the morally right and good thing to do. Um, and then they depart West. Um, and I think that is like a really lovely and, and kind of brilliant um, end for, for Legolas, but also Legolas is kind of this encapsulation of his, his joint people, the the Cinder and the Nandor elves. Well, that's that's really sweet. I really like that. And then the last thing we got here is that he eventually does depart to the west with Gimli following Aragorn's <laughs> death. 
Uh, anything you want to add on that or yeah um I, so doesn't Gimli die <laughs> yeah this is this is the big question debate uh mortals theoretically die in Valinor even though they made it to Valinor um but you know maybe they don't maybe they get to live forever um the funnier thing to me um which I think I also said in the Gimli episode is that like Valinor isn't like inaccessible to mortals because there's a wall or something or because there's a border guard it's inaccessible because the earth is literally round now and the elves are just capable of building ships that can like essentially fly to the moon and Valinor being the moon. So Gimli in Legolas's handcrafted ship trying to go to Valinor must have been absolutely shitting it. Imagine your pal is like, we're going to go to heaven and then shows you a cardboard rocket ship he made in his backyard and is like, I swear this will work. That is effectively what Gimli and Legolas are doing. And like every time I think about it, I'm like, what the so weak Christ was going on there? <laughs> Dude's rock. Dude's um. rock. <laughs> Before we dive into the movie history, I just want to tell you that is not an error. We did drop the Taking the Hobbits to Isengard Trap remix twice in this episode because why Why wouldn't we? So in talking about the movies, we're actually going to start with the Hobbit movies, which, yeah, LOL. <laughs> we know the Hobbit films ain't good, and we are loath to put much stock in them, even as we talk about the Lord of the Rings films themselves. But I do want to mention his role there, as he's given significant stuff in both the Desolation of Smog and the Battle of the Five Armies, though I'm just recalling what I can from the top of my head. I did not rewatch those movies for this podcast episode. Uh, one thing I'll note right off the bat is that the facial smoothing they do to hide the lines on Orlando Bloom's face is just pretty terrible. It just looks awful throughout uh, the two, final two movies of that trilogy. Uh, and Legolas is paired with his anti-mask girlfriend, Toriel. Well, <laughs> Toriel may or may not be anti-mask uh, but because she's a made-up character, but Evangeline Lilly, who played her, is, so fuck her. <laughs> anyway, they capture Thorin's company as it enters Mirkwood. Um, Thorin's company was actually being attacked by the spiders of Mirkwood, um, and near the end of that, uh, Toriel and Legolas arrive to save them and then take them to uh, Thandrul's cave, lair, I don't know what you want to call that kind of edifice, but uh, the dwarves would eventually escape, but uh, upon escaping, they would be set upon by orcs, and then once again, Legolas and Toriel arrive to save them, and they would eventually track the hobbits all the way to Lake Town, uh, and then in Lake Town, we get one of what I think is 
the only good action sequence in um, those movies, or at least fight sequence. Um, it's uh, Legolas fighting the orc Bolg, and I only think it's good because like there's actual impact and force in the melee. Uh, <laughs> one of my uh, criticisms of the Hobbit movies generally is that all the action that I you know sing about on this podcast um is all like highly choreographed cgi nonsense in the hobbit movies and this is the only fight that really strikes me as having a sense of place and gravity and dexterity um those are probably the wrong words mm-hmm. but um you might remember the scene because uh, legolas is surprised that he can apparently bleed um which bold makes him do during the course of the fight. <laughs> i really Moving have no memory to- of this at all which is making this really funny for me because i'm like I'm so certain I've seen these movies in the last six months and I have absolutely no memory of that scene at all. And it's dead funny that Legolas is surprised that he can bleed like truly himbo rights. Oh man, this is funny because you can pretty much fuck with me all you want and just make up shit from the legendarium that's not in the Lord of the Rings. And now I'm just going to start making up shit that's not actually in the Hobbit (laughs) movies and see if you can pick up on it. (laughs) Um. Speaking of something that is in the Hobbit movies, uh, Legolas tracks the orcs in, I believe, the third movie, Battle of the Five Armies, to a place called Gundabad. Uh, really quickly, Emily, what's Gundabad? Yep, it is the mountain in the northern Misty Mountains where the dwarves awoke in the Year of the Trees before the first stage. Uh, it's where, like, during the Deathless came came to life and where the uh, dwarves consider their uh, ancestral homeland to be. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, Legolas would uh, also take part in that Battle of the Five Armies. Um, All I really remember him doing is some like Super Mario shit on falling blocks and then fighting with Bolg again. (laughs) Um, That movie is just a huge fucking mess. And I'll save what brain cells I have for when we have to cover it and probably lose those brain cells in the process. (laughs) Um, And then probably... I don't know what I hate the most <laughs> about the Battle of the Five Armies, but possibly the thing I hate the most is Legolas's ending, which is the most wink-winky, on-the-nose bullshit I've ever seen, when after just all this chaos happens, both in terms of the story, but also how the story is depicted in cinema, uh, Thandril basically tells Legolas, uh, just go look for this ranger guy in the north. Um, I won't tell you his real name, but he goes by Strider. And then, you know, Legolas winks at the camera and, you know, it's basically the office. It's, it's absurd. It's so bad. This is actually one of the few things I do remember from The Hobbit. And, and, and the reason I especially remember is because it kickstarts 30 fucking minutes of winking at the camera. Because like, I think I did a count the last time I watched it. There's like six different references in 30 minutes to the ring in Bilbo's pocket. And so it starts with, haha, does everybody remember Aragorn? And then goes, Literally six different characters being like to Bilbo, oh, uh, that ring you've got. Hope it doesn't uh, turn into anything interesting. And and I went back to check and I sent a message to a friend when I was watching Five Armies last time for for the first time. Um, and I was like, I think this is the thing that like really kicks off this kind of like uh, Whedon-esque kind of monopoly of like tool ironic uh, Easter egg kind of hellhole stuff. Because I can remember movies being not like narratively not great and a bit kind of interested like a bit too keen in nostalgia but never so shamelessly until this um and so this is i am like like staking my flag in the ground here this is the like thing that ripped open the portal and brought like the devil of like bad uh narrative decisions into the world like peter jackson that is your fault uh 
Peter Jackson was watching Revenge of the Sith, and when Yoda inexplicably says to Obi-Wan that uh, Qui-Gon Jinn can just force ghost now, um, <laughs> Peter Jackson was like, wow, I can make like a whole 40 minutes of my movie just be about this. Um, but yeah, I think that's one thing I hate. Um, you know, as someone, you know, you can crucify me as, but I have enjoyed the Marvel Cinematic Universe that is waning. In the early stages, like, it would have, you know, quote unquote, Easter eggs, but they wouldn't be both, you know, holding your hand, you know, like, wink, wink, make sure you see this. And then also there wouldn't be like 30 pieces from like Vanity Fair and the ringer explaining them all. Um, so it just <laughs> felt nicer. But yeah, this one really sticks out as the first, like, we need to tie everything to the thing you love the most, just so you know, it's connected. It's not like anyone is still with you at the end of the third incredibly bad movie <laughs> and not understanding that they're there basically because they love the Lord of the Rings movies um, and are kind of doing this out of habit. So I don't even know what the, you know, inspiration there is to even do that. Oh, <sighs> okay. Let, let, let's talk about something I like a lot more than the Hobbit movies, and that's anime. We spoke to Legolas's <laughs> film portrayal in episode number 13, The Ring Goes South. I just said the film takes a firm stance that the elves are quote-unquote badass, but I love that Emily used the term anime as fuck instead. So, yeah, anime Legolas. He walks on snow, balances on chains, flips on horses, slides on shields, or oliphant trunks. He's just a full-on crazy weirdo when it comes to ac action sequences, and I love it. When the unarmed hunters are fighting off Grima's cronies in Meduseld, for example, Legolas even does one of those like no-look backhands to take <laughs> out a dude, like a Ninja Turtle or Rafiki from The Lion King. Which, yeah, I know it's all Bruce Lee stuff, but my touchstones are my touchstones. Mm. And I know some people complain about the nonsensical action stuff, and I absolutely get it. Like this surf shield or shield surfing and whatnot, um, those are very much straining credulity even for this fantasy story. But I will just say, as a seasoned critic of action cinema, I firmly believe it just kicks ass. <laughs> um, but I also generally take a stance in cinema, and especially blockbuster and fantasy cinema, that the more insanely stupid something is, the more I am into it. Yeah, um, I am I think I'm a person who's like inclined to roll their eyes at a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, but I will actually say, in, in, in defense of these insanely stupid stunts that, that Legolas does, um, given that these films kind of made the, the, the clear and firm decision to not have a like any sort of argument or position or interest in the like intellectual and spiritual difference between the elves and uh, everybody else in Middle Earth, um, they had to find some some way to uh, emphasize that the elves weren't just like prettier, faster human beings. And they needed something to do that. And and if they weren't going to engage with like the, the intellectual and cultural and religious components of that, then, then uh, Breath of the Wild shield surfing is pretty much the only way that they really could have done that effectively. Um, and I guess like you could theoretically make an argument for it that like given the elves are kind of more in tune with Earth than the men are, um, you know, maybe the the way to to show that in film is to have them like literally bend the laws of physics to uh, their, you know, their wills. And then another influence, which... I am pretty sure it's an influence, but it might just be my brain poison here, is Link from The Legend of Zelda. Um, you can even anagram Legolas, or you can make the word Legolas from the title Legend of Zelda. You just have to replace an S with a Z. <laughs> Look, I, try, I tried really hard here. Um, 
like I said, I don't know if Link is explicitly like a touchstone here, but in terms of famous elves as of 1997, Link is pretty much at the top of the list. And it's actually just one year prior to the launch of Ocarina of Time, uh, the Legend of Zelda title for the Nintendo 64, which is one of the most popular and well-remembered Zelda titles, um, and was definitely kind of one of those games that leaked out of just the video game circles and into broader pop culture and entertainment news. So maybe that was on their mind. And Legolas's hair and outfit kind of seemed to borrow a bit from Link's look. Um, I mean, back then we had really choppy 3D polygon, so I can't say that it looked a lot <laughs> like, you know, what it is. But you can see that there was definitely influences in some of the, like, character design artwork that Nintendo would do prior to actually developing its games. And I mostly just talk about this because I love the Zelda games. Um, my top three Zelda games are Breath of the Wild, then the original Nintendo Zelda, and then Link's Awakening. And I just think it's very important for me to say that right now. Emily, have you played the Zelda games? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, I have. I've played Breath of the Wild. Um, I've also played Wind Waker when I was a kid. Um, I never owned Zelda games until... Until I got Breath of the Wild, um, and then clocked uh, an, a number of hours. I will not. I don't think I'm legally allowed to reveal on Breath of the Wild, um, but um, I've seen a whole bunch of them. Um, so I've seen obviously Breath of the Wild is my number one. I think that's beautiful. Um, Wind Waker I also think is uh, like a beautiful looking game, and then the other one um, that I quite like, um, at least in terms of watching, is Twilight Princess. I thought that was like super interesting uh, aesthetically. Um, and uh, I also liked, uh, she's not Mifo. Oh my God, what is she? Um, I can't remember her name. Um, I liked the little Manic Pixie dream girl on that. I thought she was good vibes. <laughs> oh God, I can't remember her name either. But yeah, yeah, no, I like Twilight Princess too. So um, And, uh, you know, perhaps a special announcement for our listeners. If you're into this Zelda talk, um, over at my other podcast, Podcast Sounds Frontiers, we're actually going to do a special five-year anniversary episode about Breath of the Wild. Um, we will be doing that with uh, one of our listeners of this podcast and good friends, Mark Normandine, who has wrote extensively about the Breath of the Wild. It was his number one Nintendo game of all time in a recent Top 101 he did. Oh, yeah. um, so if you're interested in that, I will, I'll make sure to throw it on the My Brother feed or at least mention it um, elsewhere. So if you are interested in that, you can find it. Moving on, uh, perhaps probably the most remembered trait of Legolas is the fact that he is Gimli's bestie. Um, and we kind of covered a lot of that in our character history and our Gimli sewed. You know, they went to, they had a long friendship. Um, it's sweet, it's heartwarming. We talked about them, you know, seeing the world together. Is there anything you want to add to that, Emily? Yeah, so up top I talked about um, Elrond as kind of the great unifier because he brings together uh, all of the like important houses and kind of clans of men with all of the important clans and houses of the elves. Um, Legolas, I think, is also really important because he ties together um, the 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 dwarves to the elves, and um, in in helping to smuggle Gimli across to Valinor, kind of heals this ancient rift that really starts from the genesis of the dwarves that 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 we talked about in the the Gimli episode. Um, and um, I think there's you know a, a really good case to be made that like uh, Legolas's kind of family through Thranduil and through Orifer. Um, end up being um, just as uh, like significant and just as important 
kind of like coalition brokers um, as as Elrond in many cases, at least in the context of Lord of the Rings. And I think that's like something that is quite underrated about uh, Legolas's character and is really uh, nice and like just worth pointing out whenever it comes up. This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. Legolas has another distinct film role, being Aragorn's reply guy. Okay, maybe I shouldn't use language exclusive to the brain poisoned on Twitter. He's a simp. Wait, no, sorry. (laughs) But my dude is really into Aragorn, which to be fair, Vigo does quite a dashing figure. There is a straight line of moments to trace here, you know, Legolas explaining Aragorn's right to exist at the council, followed by Legolas recovering Arwen's pendant after Aragorn throws himself off a cliff for some reason, Um, and then later when they reunite ahead of the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, Legolas returns the pendant to Aragorn. I just want to cut in here real quick to point out something that someone else pointed out to me recently, which is that um, immediately before this scene, uh, before uh, Aragorn gets murked by the the warg, um, he and Eowyn have a conversation um, about uh, Legolas's pendant, um, and he uh, says that uh, it was given to him by an elf uh, who is getting ready to go across the sea to the west, and then the next time Eowyn sees Aragorn and that pendant and an elf is when Legolas is giving the pendant back to Aragorn. (laughs) I'm just going to let that one speak for itself, really, and just like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love it. I love that. Uh, And then we get Aragorn and Legolas uh, debating their chances against the Uruk army at Helm's Deep. Um, When we see them actually have a little bit of a tiff, you know, Aragorn says, I will die as one of them. And then Legolas will come up, you know, a few minutes later and say, you know, I'm sorry, buddy. I was wrong to despair. Here's your sword. I love you. And they make out. (laughs) Um, And this is, you know, just further uh, buoyed uh, when they actually man the walls of Helm's Deep to begin the battle. And Legolas says, your friends are with you, Aragorn. And, you know, Gimli has to chime in, you know, I hope they survive the night or whatever it is. And then, of course, uh, Legolas and Gimli will not take no for an answer when Aragorn has to go into the Pass of the Dead. We just see that. So, you know, they have a long history of, you know, or at least Legolas has a long history of just like being in Aragorn's corner no matter what. (laughs) So I guess, I guess, as much as I dislike that Hobbit scene where Thandruil tells Legolas to go find Strider, I can at least understand them wanting to explain why this elf is so down bad for Aragorn. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we like to just highlight some of his film moments here. I'll just kind of list them off. Uh, We detailed a lot of his action uh, in Moria. Um, I will have a lot to say about some of the Legolas action in Parth Galen in uh, an upcoming episode. Um, He is, of course, part of the three hunters that would try to track uh, the Uruks who took Merry and Pippin in the two towers. Um, When you think of the best lines from Legolas, I think this is where... Um, most of those come in, like they run as if the whips of their masters are behind them or (laughs) a red sun rises, blood has been spilled this night. This all comes really early in the two towers, um, as well as the, what do your elf eyes see, uh, stuff. And they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Um, so all the memorable quotes from Legolas are basically in the first 25 minutes of the two towers. Um, a little further, uh, down the movie, uh, when, uh, 
with Gandalf, uh, what's it called, calls an Uber and a white horse shows up. <laughs> uh, Legolas gets another one of his uh, great poetic lines. That is one of the Maras, unless my eyes are cheated by some spell. Um, classic Legolas, exactly how humans talk. Or <laughs> elves, I guess, sorry. Um, and then I want to talk about the warg attack on the um, caravan of Rohan people going from Medusel to uh, Helm's Deep because... There's this moment, and I'm sure you all know what I'm going to get at, where, you know, Legolas is, you know, shooting off some arrows, and the riders of Rohan appear behind him, or just horseback Rohirrim, and then Legolas does this absolutely insane fucking flip that's not <laughs> physically possible onto the horse. Um, it's the one that Gimli was on because they, you know, share a saddle, um, but <laughs> we weren't quite at, like you know, Avengers level people screaming in theaters at stuff in movies at this point in my life. Um, actually, we kind of were because the first time I experienced that was at the Phantom Menace debut and Yoda's appearance. Um, but I remember this sold out midnight crowd, just like a, a collective like, <gasps> like, what the <laughs> fuck was that kind of thing? And that's why I say, like, no matter how stupid, like some of this stuff might be like just remembering that moment um, like it will always stick with me as like one of the, like the most precious moments in a movie theater I've ever had. Cause it was, it was truly incredible. There's this great in the behind the scenes, uh, documentary for, uh, Lord of the Rings, which they call the appendices appropriately. And there's this great bit where some of the Weta workshop, uh, CG team are talking about, uh, that scene in particular. And, uh, the person who's being interviewed for it just gets the most shit eating grin on their face when they're like, yeah, this definitely breaks the laws of physics. There is no actual way that this could happen have been done like this is a completely ridiculous bit but it looks great doesn't it and that is like that is the level of energy that i really appreciate just that total recognition that there this is totally detached from reality not at all possible but holy shit does it not look fucking brilliant and yes it does it does look fucking brilliant <laughs> yeah I, it just jesus christ a good <laughs> moment <laughs> Um, and then he has, you know, some more of that stuff uh, going into Helm's Deep. We talked about the shield surfing a little bit, which is a little hokier. I'm not as big a fan of, but, you know, they do cue it up to the fellowship mo motif, which, you know, it's kind of like when the main Star Wars motif plays like in the movie, like when uh, Luke and Leia are trying to cross the bridge in A New Hope. It just it kind of instantly gets the blood up regardless of what's on screen. Uh, so I'm fond of the shield surfing. And then that's also when we find out about his ongoing contest with Gimli about how many, you know, orcs they kill. Uh, very pleasant to think about, <laughs> um, which uh, will continue on into Return of the King, which Legolas doesn't really have much in Return of the King. Not that he has much at any point, but he has significantly <laughs> much less in Return of the King, um, where I think the only thing people really remember of him from that movie is taking down the Oliphant. So today's actor corner may be our briefest yet, if for no other reason than I haven't seen Orlando Bloom and too much else besides that first Pirates trilogy. He has some other prominent roles, but I have not really dug into them. Bloom was born on January 13th, 1977, so he was 20 when he started filming The Lord Jesus. of the Rings. His Wikipedia has one of the most brilliant yet stupidest things I've ever read, and I quote, he realized that the characters on TV and in the movies weren't real, that they were actors. <laughs> Once I realized that I could be Superman, or I could be the Hustler, or I could be Daniel Day-Lewis's character in The Last of the Mohicans, I was like, man, I can become an actor and be all of those things. <laughs> Which Himbo writes, Himbo writes. <laughs> Uh, and I low-key love that mention of The Last of the Mohicans because when we kick off The Two Towers, I'm going to reference that film a lot because I think a lot of how The Three Hunters are staged and filmed is very similar to how Daniel Day-Lewis and his two companions are filmed in that movie. 
Anyways, Bloom was actually pushed into the arts by his mom because he was dyslexic. Uh, Sure. Uh, Bloom also would not know his real father until age 13, believing that the anti-apartheid novelist Harry Bloom was his actual dad. Um, Harry Bloom was his mom's husband, but not his biological dad. His actual father was a friend of his mom, who would become his legal guardian eventually. And I legitimately have a this happened to my buddy Eric anecdote about this. I have very much have a friend who also had a similar revelation, but you know, due to privacy, I will not divulge that story further. And that's two Lord of the Rings actors who that happened to, because that is also a Liv Tyler story as well. <laughs> oh, I, man, we, we, I think we just need to do an Arwen episode just so we can hear that story. <laughs> Uh, Bloom would have small TV and film parts prior to The Lord of the Rings, though his meteor roles still tended to be on stage in London. And since Legolas was the coolest action hero of the Fellowship, Bloom underwent extensive training for archery, swordplay, and horseback riding. Um, And I'm going to quote him again here, saying, I started off with archery. I rode about 20 different horses. I had physical training in the gym, and I had to learn the elvish ways of speaking and fighting. Their fighting is based on ancient European and Asian martial arts, so I had a trainer who taught me how to use the blades. I also did a lot of movement training because movement is my way into the character. As we mentioned during our Gimli episode, Legolas actually auditioned first for Faramir, though Jackson (laughs) found him to be perfect for Legolas, which I agree. Uh, aside from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, I'm pretty sure Emily's still laughing at Legolas po- or Orlando <laughs> yeah, Bloom yeah. possibly being Faramir. Um, aside from the Tolkien adaptations, his biggest film role is that of Will Turner in the Pirates of the Caribbean series. I've only seen the first three of which, which he prominently stars in, though I think he did return in one of the more recent uh, reboots or iterations. I don't really know what to call them anymore. Uh, The first film is the only one I have any real affection for, though the first three are still generally well-liked, despite its diminishing returns. Who makes all these? I do. And I practice with them three hours a day. You need to find yourself a girl, mate. Or... Perhaps the reason you practice three hours a day is that you already found one and are otherwise incapable of wooing said strumpers. You're not a eunuch, are you? I practice three hours a day so that when I meet a pirate, I can kill it! He's also been in some big-budget, quote-unquote, epics, namely Kingdom of Heaven and Troy, Supposedly, the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is pretty good, though the theatrical cut isn't. Um, I want to track it down, but I just don't see the director's cut streaming that often. I never watched Troy either, because it was supposedly just mid, but I wonder if the recent flattening of modern blockbusters would have me look Mm. back on it more fondly now. He did did star opposite Sean Bean in that one, though, so (laughs) at least there's a fellowship reunion there. Um, I guess Orlando Bloom also is or was a heartthrob big on the tabloid pages. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I've heard of such things, but they have little interest to me, both at the time the films were coming out or to really look into now. 
Don't know much about his politics either, which, you know, maybe that's a good thing after our Gimli episode. <laughs> um, he does seem to be interested in green policy stuff and do humanitarian work with UNICEF, but I'm always wary of nonprofit work by Western chauvinist organizations. Um, oh, and we we got to shout out our friend uh, Kiefer here, um, who's one of our good friends. And um, just uh, Emily pulled this review um, that he had of Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, which he says... Orlando Bloom was probably the first man in Hollywood to be treated like a woman. The second he turned 30, nobody wanted anything to do with him. Uh, damn shame that that only has um, two likes um, as of the time that Emily took that screenshot. But uh, uh, Kiefer is a great dude at Danny Vegito on Twitter. Uh, you go ahead, follow him. He's hilarious. And that's just a hilarious review. I'm so glad you pulled that. <laughs> Every time I see Orlando Bloom's fucking face, I can't take him seriously anymore because of that review. I like, Every movie I have seen him in since, I just melt down because I can't. He is, he's totally treated like, and that's why he's disappeared. Now he's like trophy husband to Katy Perry and not like not good for much else. And it's so accurate. (laughs) And I really can't separate it with the fact that when you described his arrival into the films, you described him as a Hollywood starlet (laughs) um, in the way that he was shot and lit. And now he's actually getting, it's like such meta. It's, it's like the most meta thing that the Lord of the Rings has ever done is to shoot him like that and then to have the actual world treat him as such afterwards. It's really incredible. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and at mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I've been working on, which bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting on Twitter, where you can find me objectifying more beautiful himbos. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. <laughs>